I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today, I'm talking with Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins. As DA, Rachel Rollins is the Chief Law Enforcement Officer for Boston, Chelsea, Revere, and Winthrop. She's the first woman ever elected as District Attorney in Suffolk County, and the first woman of color ever elected District Attorney in Massachusetts. Since taking office in 2019, Rachel Rollins has implemented policies aimed at reducing the prosecution of misdemeanors that are tied to mental health issues, substance use disorders, food and housing insecurities, and immigration status. She's created the Discharge Integrity Team to help investigate officer-involved shootings and allegations of excessive force and the Integrity Review Bureau that looks not only at post-conviction claims of actual innocence, but also reviews unconstitutional, unethical, and unjust convictions, as well as sentencing disparities. District Attorney Rachel Rollins was the Boston Globe's Bostonian of the Year in 2019, Emerge Massachusetts Woman of the Year in 2019, and one of Boston Business Journal's Power 50 Exceptional Leaders in 2020. Good morning, District Attorney Rachel Rollins. It's wonderful to have you here today with me. Thank you so much. So, so much that I wanna to talk to you about. It's funny, I was talking to Attorney General Maura Healy a few weeks ago on this podcast, and we realized that we had in common, we're both college athletes. And we actually had a fairly long discussion about that because we think it made both of us in a way who we are today. And I know you also were an incredible rock star athlete, lacrosse, I think being your thing at, at UMass. And so do you mind talking just a little bit about what, what part of you is still that athlete and what you took from kind of growing up being on the field? For sure. So I'm the oldest of five children and my father raised me as somebody who we wanted to know you can do anything you put your mind to, right? He had incredibly high standards. And I obviously am somebody with him who wanted to have him be proud of me, right? So we spent a lot of time when I was younger with local sports. And then ultimately at Buckingham Brown and Nichols, I was fortunate to play soccer, basketball, and lacrosse. And I was very fortunate to receive a scholarship to go to college. There's something really beautiful about sports where you, in particular team sports, you, I hope, learn to look at people and see the best qualities they have that you can utilize in that moment, right? Um, not use them, but essentially what is Jill fantastic at? Let's make sure we have her do that or, and not have Rachel do the thing she's really not that good at, right? right. So totally. I think you get so many of these skills that later in your life, when you are coalition building, right? When yeah. you are in a crisis and have to respond appropriately, you can draw from those experiences. Even, you know, I see with younger girls and, and boys now, or, or people now, you know, that have had some exceptional sports experiences in their lives, even in middle school or youth sports or high school or college, of course. So, right. and honestly, the I'm competitive, right? right? Right. Like the competitiveness, I'm old now, so I'm not playing lacrosse, but there is still a competitive nature uh, that you have when you're an athlete. Yeah. And do you find too, that 
you know, it could go either way. Like you're going for the win, but the loss is just a thing that won't happen again. You'll figure out how to get right. It, you have a different perspective on how you move through the world. Yeah. I love that. Right. Yeah. And for me, what I often say, because I know now as an elected official, us trying and showing up prepared right. is such a huge step because so few people do it. Right. right. So there is a part of this where, yes, there are sprints, but most things are marathons. Right. Yeah. And so when, you know, I have the, I have the good fortune of being the mom of a very amazing athlete who's 17 years old, you don't show up at outdoor nationals having not practiced for three months. Right. You, you have to put in all the work so that on the day of this competition, you are prepared, right? It is a matter of even as a, as a practicing lawyer, I've said, you might beat me, Jill, um, but it won't be because you're more prepared than me, right? right? Like right. You, you, it may be that a case just came down or it may be that, a, you know, I don't persuade a juror, yeah. but it will never be because you read all of the documents and I didn't, right? right? There is just a fundamental, like that is just not even a possibility in my world for me. And, but that urgency I bring to my job as the DA. So I have incredibly high standards for the exceptional people that work in the Suffolk County DA's office because the people of Suffolk County deserve it. It has nothing to do with me. Yeah. They have been malnourished and ignored and have unfortunately bared the brunt of the negative parts of the criminal legal system and not the positive parts. Right. So we are going to be exceptional in the way that we explain things to them, in the way that we prosecute ultimately or choose not to and respect them enough to explain that process. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you know, I wonder if that advocacy piece of you was, was one of the first times that it came out was I thought it was so interesting that UMass had cut your team. And and, you know, we're I think we're both about the same age and Title IX meant a lot, I think, to women our age, right? It was Absolutely. a really big deal. It was, it was just this evolution of sports and equality and, you know, that we all were going to have kind of this level playing field in terms of athletics and that we could use that as a lever to make sure that we were seen in the same way, I think, in high school and, and college sports. And you, you actually, you rallied to, to bring the team back and, and Title IX was used as a lever. And, and did that experience pique your interest in becoming a lawyer? Or were you already engaged and, and thinking, okay, our next step is law school? No way. That this is, that is the moment, right? That is the moment, the defining moment of me saying, oh my God, yeah. lawyers are amazing, right? <laughs> right? Like, so we had women's lacrosse, women's volleyball, and women's tennis. Good, good teams. We were doing well. Yeah. Um, we, by the way, shout out to UMass uh, men's hockey, who just won a national championship. And of course, the first national championship, though, was the women's lacrosse team. But I digress. Um, <laughs> awesome. So we had a great, rich history. We had a really good coach. And at the end of my freshman year, we were told that the team was being cut. Now, fortunately for me, I had signed a contract. I had mm -hmm. a, a four-year scholarship and they honored that. Mm -hmm. um, but honestly, Jill, after about six or so months of like, oh my God, this is amazing. I don't have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and do pool running or whatever. Yeah. I realized it's bigger than that. Yeah. I miss the camaraderie. I miss the physical, you know, <laughs> workouts, right? Literally. Yeah. And I also miss the competition. There's so much more to sport 
you know, there's so many beautiful elements of sport. Yeah. And then when I realized, wait a minute, women's volleyball and, and tennis were cut too. And our men's football team hadn't lost a single scholarship and they were not winning games. Right. So the three, some women from each of our three teams tried to get a meeting with the athletic director and we couldn't. And then we got a lawyer and miraculously we got a meeting and that lawyer without even filing a title nine lawsuit, just threatening with, here's the complaint we are going to file. If you don't do this, all three teams were reinstated and something inside me exploded. And I just said, Oh, this is, this is what I want to do. Right. It's about equity at its base. And so marry that with your story of growing up. And so you have, I think there's five of you in total. I know your sister, Becca, uh, I serve on the Red Sox foundation board and she's amazing. Um, Yes, she is. And so talk a little bit about growing up because your, your dad was Irish in Mm -hmm. Boston, Cambridge, your mom was first generation Mm -hmm. and, and her parents are from Barbados. Is that right? And, That's right. Right. And so, and so maybe can you talk a little bit about growing up, your siblings and living in Cambridge? How did that, how did your family shape how you see the world today as district attorney? Yeah, it's a beautiful, I, I feel like I have several superpowers, but I think one of them is being multicultural yeah. and the ability to have the gift of just parents with different backgrounds. Right. Yeah. And opening different worlds. And so my dad is second generation Irish American, um, very, very Irish family. And he would say not lace curtain Irish, not two toilet Irish, right? He was hardworking, you know, not wealthy. Um, And they lived in Southie and, you know, Whiskey Point uh, projects in Brookline. And they lived in West Roxbury and and all the, the, the places that He's 73 now, where a lot of the Irish community was living, and um, met my mom when he came home from Vietnam. He was enrolled, or he served our country, uh, and is a veteran, and they fell in love, and my mom is first generation from Barbados, and, you know, Black woman, West Indian woman, and my dad's family disowned him when he married my mom, but like most families, you know, they came back, and we had a good relationship with them, but... I am fully aware, I say it all the time as the DA, change is really hard, right? right. And so I just had the most amazing childhood of this just sort of cornucopia of like different cultures and and experiences and worlds all colliding. So my parents originally were living in Boston. I was born in Boston. And then it was not as welcoming uh, to them very candidly back in, you know, 69, 70, 71. So they moved to Cambridge and that's where we were. I was born in Boston, but I was raised in Cambridge. And what's beautiful is we lived in this amazing neighborhood where we had like a beautiful um, blend of all of these children that were, you know, spoke different languages, you know, they, a lot of their parents went to more teachers or students at MIT or Harvard. And so I lived in this world that was just welcoming and amazing and diverse. And that's what I want our world to be. So that's interesting. So you, because I, you know, I was reading an article last night where you said, you were talking about your superpowers and you said, I'm everything that people don't think I am. And that's my superpower. And, and I resonated with that because I remember being, you know, a young woman in tech in the industry when it was mostly male. 
And I felt like that was my superpower because everyone underestimated me and manipulated is the wrong word, but I certainly knew how to finesse any situation. And and I think a little bit because they underestimated me. And so I wondered what you meant by that. And if, because you grew up the way you did, are you able to kind of see through people's skin color, economic status, and really see, you know, kind of their souls and, and, and you, you start from there. hundred percent. I mean, I feel like I make, I never make assumptions about people because what is so beautiful about my background is that I never would assume I knew who you loved, Jill. I don't know who raised you. I don't know where you were born. I don't know what, if you have children or not. Um, if, If you do have children, where, where are they from? What do they look? I never make assumptions about people because I have been for so long a, a person that people made many, many assumptions about, and they were usually wrong. Yeah, They were usually wrong. So I think that is a really nice place to start yeah. with. And then also, you know, I jokingly say like, I'm fluent in white Irish male. My dad is like, the most Irish male alive. And so, and he's Boston, 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 right? So there's a piece of this where I fully respect all of that. And it's in me, it's a part of me as well. Um, But there's just, I think an ability to, I hope, slice through the nonsense and get right to the sort of essence of what we need to talk about. Yeah. So do you think that was how you, what tipped the scales for you when you were running for DA? Cause you were up against some very formidable candidates. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of them who had the backing of the police, I think, and the outgoing district attorney, and you just like knocked it out of the park. And so is this part of what your secret sauce was? Yeah. I mean, I think what's great. So there's a couple things. I think, first of all, I recognized quicker than anyone else what the job actually was. Yeah. So I think people were running for DA and saying like, I know how to try cases. Mm. And it's like, yeah, guess what the DA doesn't do? Try cases. Right. <laughs> and so once I said to the four other Democrats, walk me through any time you've ever fired somebody, have you ever had any, you know, policy making like, or management level, um, you know, ability to make a decision without having to check with somebody else. Have you ever looked in somebody's face and told them that they aren't coming back to work tomorrow and that they're losing their benefit? Like these are real things you do as an executive. And so none of them, some of them had managed a few people, but only lawyers. Mm. Others of them had managed a few people, but not lawyers. And what I have is 350 people Half of them are lawyers. Some of them are police officers. Others are in HR, IT. So when you realize that that is a hard enough job, Jill, as you know, but then when you want to change a culture, like you have to be, this is why we have business schools, right? Right. Right? So people seem to think like, I'm dynamic. I can run it. No, you aren't. And no, you can't. It takes (laughs) a lot, a lot, a lot of work. So I think that's part of it is I knew what the job was better than other people. And then the other part was I was unapologetic about talking about wealth-based disparities and race-based disparities. And I said that I would commit to doing the hard work of having conversations, not just about the police, but with them, not just about my office, but with my office, understanding that I was now 
a them, yes. right? Because right. I had been an us when I was running. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. Now I'm running this place that I've said is, you know, whoops, right? You know, yeah. so it has been a profoundly just fascinating life moment for me, right? To, right. to sort of run for office and do that for the first time at 47, right? Mm-hmm. And now to win, I believe, to be hopefully changing how we look at public safety. Yeah. Well, and it feels like you are. So part of the team, as you transform the team, you hired data people. Mm-hmm. And and so I found that very interesting. Obviously, coming from tech, data is everything. But how do, why, you were doing that. I don't know if other DA offices have now followed your lead on that, but why did you lean in that direction? And is it having the impact that you hoped it would? It is. I mean, you can't change what you don't measure. Yeah. There, there is not another industry where, where there's not sort of data analysis or an audit function. And right. I think in the criminal legal system, they're missing both, which is terrible, right? Mm-hmm. If you and I were in Detroit making, you know, windshield wipers, right? And you were supposed to put together the first four pieces and I was supposed to put together the next five. At some point, a robot or a human, I don't know what, would come over and pull off of that conveyor belt to see, did Jill do the nine little things she was supposed to do on this? And did Rachel do the four things she was supposed to do on that? Nobody does that in the criminal legal system, number one. And number two, nobody is looking at, hey, did Jill do, you know, a, an average worker is supposed to touch 73 parts a, an hour, right? Or a day, I don't, depending on how big your parts are, or if you're even following this example I'm giving, right? <laughs> no, yeah, you're, you I'm, with, right? I'm with you on the window. You're supposed to do this many, the average amount. If Rachel is supposed to be doing 73 and has done four, something's wrong with Rachel today. Or if Rachel's supposed to be doing 73 and has done 7,000, Rachel's doing something wrong. And you know where we can point to? The Hinton Drug Lab scandal. We can look at uh, Dukin and Farrakh and there was no management or oversight. So people weren't noticing these outliers, right? Of like, wait a minute, why is she doing five times as many drug certs as the other people? And so we have to be able to A, recognize it, B, give real examples that people can understand, and C, be strong and bold enough to say, and that's why I'm reducing the number of lawyers by a few, yeah. and I'm hiring these people that you think, what? Yeah. And in addition, we hired licensed independent clinical social workers because we want to be evidence-based, trauma-informed, and data-driven. So in part of what you did coming right, coming into office was you said, we're not going to criminalize mental health issues, substance use disorders, food and housing insecurities, immigration. And you, you, you really took away certain things that were going to be prosecuted deeply from a misdemeanor standpoint. And you got tons of pushback. I was, now, it sounds like I was reading some new research that just came out maybe a month or so ago that said that that they looked back over five years and when you don't prosecute low-level nonviolent misdemeanors it was something like those folks were 58 percent less likely to commit another crime within two years and totally and that prosecuting these actually not prosecuting them increased public safety and so so you were deeply criticized. You were also exactly right, it appears. 
based on the research. Yeah. And so, but it was, it was contrary to right in the nineties when the police commissioner in New York city, William Bratton, I think mm -hmm. there was the whole broken windows theory and you should yeah. actually go after those are exactly the guys you go after because it just, it builds. So you were, you were basically taking the opposite stance. I'm assuming you were seeing that already in your work and you were like, look, this is just, this is, or was it more kind of, you understood what was happening to the community when those sorts of things were prosecuted and, and you were leaving other stuff in the way. How did you come to that decision? Yeah, there were, you know, I, I think coming from the community that was, you know, the recipient, right, of yeah. the broken windows theory right. um, and seeing that it wasn't working, right? Like, are we more safe as a result of this? You yeah. know, and so the whole premise of my, Rollins memo, my 15 types of crime that we just flip the presumption from prosecution to declination, dismissal, or diversion. Yeah. And remember, Jill, it's a rebuttable presumption. We can always go back to prosecuting, sure. right? So the National Bureau of Economic Research published this study that actually went back 17 years and looked back to 2004, went over 67,000 cases and said, wait a minute, when you when that person first comes into contact with the system, if you don't prosecute them, they don't recidivate. Right. Um, you know, at significantly high rates, they don't. Yeah. And but if you do prosecute them, they do recidivate at significantly high rates. It's it is vindicating, but I can also recognize that there are some people that say, I don't care about your data. I'm looking at Mass Ave and Melnia Cass, and it's not working here. Right. And so what I have to be is open to hearing that and recognizing that both of those things can be true at the same time. Sure. Right. Right. You know, so we have to make sure that although I really like the data, what I am not going to do is wait for 17 more years till we look at the data again. We're going to have people that are employed by my office that are tasked with looking at things in real time, but also never say no yeah. to outside people who want to look at our data, because guess what? It's not even my data. It's the people of Suffolk County's data. Right. And then we need to myopically focus on what the community is saying, because for example, Jill, when we say, but violent crime is down and we are down 30% with murders um, as compared to last year, mm. which is what we were able to say in 2019, yeah. there were still 40 families that lost their loved ones. They don't want to hear that statistic, nor should you ever say it to them because that's 40 too many. So we have to recognize that those things can be true at the same time and we can't get defensive and that's very hard, but, but I have to work on, you know, I am the face of this office and people, I have to feel grateful when they are upset and talk to me yeah. because they finally feel like they're being hurt. Do you, do you feel though, that this is just, you've got to dig deeper on certain, but you know, so you, you had a kind of a large swath of different things that you thought this would be true for. And, but each thing deserves, you have to go deeply into it because I'm sure there's different motivations in each case that, I mean, you talk about mass and casts and I would imagine that's what's happening there is that, that there's something that you have to drill much deeper into to understand Right. And we need to we need to work with which we are the Boston Police Department to say, what are we doing? Not just generally, yeah. there needs to be a specific targeted proactive action. And that, you know, that's the other thing I noticed. It's 
it's this, they don't collect data. There's no audit function yeah. and it is completely reactive. Right. A hundred percent reactive, right. Right? right? As opposed to where I came from. I was a federal prosecutor, right? So where they are almost a hundred percent proactive, right. right? They are working with their federal agencies, you know, ticking away meticulously at putting a case together and then ultimately taking down whomever, right? Right. 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 As opposed to the, the local prosecutor who we wait until a shot spotter activation happens yeah. or somebody calls 911 and we react. Yeah. What I want to do is be far more ambidextrous. Yeah. I want us to always react, right? But we, I want to live in a world, Joe, where I am proactively disrupting violence before it happens by capturing data and involving people that aren't lawyers, that aren't police officers, that are experts in this area that can help us be better. Yeah. Okay. There's so many directions I want to go with that. I, (laughs) when you talk about proactively getting in front of these situations, how far from a, from the vantage point of a district attorney, how far can you go, right? Because I would argue that, you know, we spend a lot of time in schools and around school food and talking to principals. And it's always strikes me, right? When you're hanging out with a whole bunch of kids that are just so amazing, right? And they all want to hug you and they're they're just incredible. And then you'll be talking to the principal and, and she'll point out a particular boy who she has a place in her heart for, but she keeps him after school to help her because she's worried that the third grader will otherwise go, you know, she'll be, he'll be pulled into a gang because of what, right. And so how far back do you go in order to start to really solve the problem? And as the district attorney, do you feel like, it feels like you'd need, you'd you'd need multi prongs in the city, right? Really collaborating around this initiative, this vision. And, and can we get there, you know, from a Suffolk County perspective? I I hope so. I sincerely hope so. But I will tell you, you know, when I think of my childhood and I do, I mean, there's been, you know, I've had lived experiences that are different than many people in the role that I currently sit in, but I've had privilege, right? I had two parents that cared deeply about us that, you know, sacrificed everything to make sure we went to fantastic schools. You know, there was a privilege that I did have, but if you asked me or some other people, maybe when they think about what keeps you safe, a lot of people, the answer isn't the police. It's when you think about when you were a child and you felt safe, it was your house, right? Or your mom or your dad or your guardian, or maybe a teacher that you really liked, or a, a, a sports team, or if you were in the Boy Scouts or the Brownies, or you played an instrument or whatever in art or, right. or culture you were doing, you know, so for me, I know I am in the criminal sort of justice lane, yeah. but we're on a highway all going the same way. And, you know, education, right? right? Affordable housing, having a living wage, mental health care, right? After school, like, you know, and sports, arts, and culture opportunities in our communities, not just in the W towns of Wabin and Winthrop and Wellesley, you know, um, you know, so again, I feel like in Weston, right? So (laughs) I just feel like we have to, we have to have equity, right? Where we 
recognize the humanity in all of us that no matter our color, our, our language, who we pray to, if we pray at all, yeah. we, we all just want to be safe and I hope healthy. Right? right. And that's kind of the way that I start the process where, you know, and that's why when you hear people saying like reimagine the police or even defund the police, it's, it's the concept of, and I say, reimagine, I want to live in a world where instead of $55,000 per person at the Suffolk County House of Corrections and 13 or $14,000 per child in our public school system, right. that it's different, right? right? In that a, for every, you know, two prisoners, there's one correction officer in the carceral like world, but for every 31 students, there's one teacher in public schools. Like I want to live in a world where, where somebody, our governors, our mayors, our electeds, our, our legislature, our federal delegation or state, wherever they are thinking that way. They're changing the ratio. Absolutely. Changing those ratios. You know, Jill, I like to tell people if I was being the DA in a way that was going to benefit Rachel Rollins, I wouldn't say 95% of the things that I say, because I am, I'm intelligent, I promise you, and I am aware, right? So for me, I am compelled to say the things that I say, because there are so few other people saying them. And I am saying them on behalf of communities that I've heard screaming this for decades. And they believe with a few elected leaders that there are now people that are willing to say those things, right? So I think it's an exciting time. Yeah. I think, you know, we have allies, you know, across different political affiliations too. Like I will honestly give a shout out to Governor Baker because right now we have the most diverse Supreme Judicial Court probably in the United States of America yeah. with respect to the last three people he appointed. That's this is a Republican governor. So we can't be polarized, right? And say, you're crazy because you're a Democrat or you're crazy because you're this, or you, you know, you supported this president as opposed to that one. I want to be the DA and I am that was on Tucker Carlson, right. That calls Howie Carr, right. right? Occasionally, (laughs) right. Not all the time, but you know, has, has conversations with people that disagree with me and even are disagreeable. Yeah, because I feel like that's when we start making change. Well, it is right because you otherwise I, I think we we rarely hear that middle point of view, right? That whatever's happening between you and Howie Carr in in the moment is actually the thing that is should be the most interesting to all of us. And I, I suspect that you know you're willing to lean in and say it, but I I think that the folks that you represent primarily are with you in spirit, right? It takes a lot of courage to actually vocalize it, but I think it's why you have so many people leaning in to what you're saying as well. And and you're saying things that I think are newly being heard. You know, everything that, you know, has happened with the Derek Chauvin trial, you leaned in way before even COVID and put together the discharge integrity team to help Mm -hmm. investigate officers involved in shootings or allegations of excessive force. You, you, you had the foresight to do that and as well as create the Integrity Review Bureau. And those things to me are fascinating because you were in front of these. This is all pre-COVID that you did these things. And as you saw the last year and a half play out in terms of unrest, just, just massive unrest across this country where everyone is itching to be somewhere else 
or someone else, or, or, you know, that we would all believe more in each other or stop and listen to one another. How have those two entities played out for you? Have those been successful endeavors and, and in what way? Yeah. So our discharge integrity team was something I had thought about, you know, a lot. So we've seen, and George Floyd was an officer involved. It wasn't a shooting, but it was a killing, right? Murder, yeah. Um, yeah, murder. And so essentially what people are recognizing now is that prosecutors and police in 95% of the cases, we are aligned. We are walking into court. Our key witness is a police officer mm -hmm. against a civilian, mm -hmm. right? Who mm -hmm. has allegedly committed a crime and we're going to be aligned. Mm -hmm. Where that is flipped on its head is when the target or the accused is a police officer, yeah. where now the very prosecutor that is used to being, you know, cordial, aligned, and in fact, on the same side as these police officers, the community that is over-policed, over-prosecuted, and not reflected oftentimes in the prosecutor's office or the police department right. is now supposed to look and believe that the DA is going to not be biased in favor of the police. So what I did was I created a group of four outsiders, a community member, a criminal defense attorney, a retired superior court judge, and an active member of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So we have everything covered and I'm the fifth member. We don't even meet in my office. And I say, yes, I am the DA, but I don't know any of these people, right? My background is federal. I don't have relationships with the Boston police prior to being elected. Yeah. And we are going to direct and control this entire investigation and then speak on what our determinations are. So that's the discharge integrity team. What is fascinating to me about George Floyd is exactly about my list of 15. When we look at George, right. that's a misdemeanor murder, right. Yeah. right? So certain communities, Jill, have far too many interactions with law enforcement at the lowest level. I'm not talking about shot spotter activation, a man with a gun. No, right. I'm talking about counterfeit $20 bill, right. selling loose cigarettes or having an air freshener blocking your mirror. The fact that you can be killed or even like bothered as a result of some of those things right. and not receive a citation or, or some other thing. So right. for me, we have too many interactions with law enforcement, all of which can escalate in an instant. And, and I mean this seriously, it could hurt the police. Like it could escalate into a situation where the police are harmed or a member of our community is harmed. And that's why I was saying, let's stop that many encounters, right? What are right. we going to think about? How are we going to have societal or culture, like community responses to some of these ailments instead of everything being law enforcement and carceral, right. which is what we do right now. And then the last thing is Integrity Review Bureau, which we're really proud of. So the discharge integrity team, first in the nation, no one's doing that. Is, is anyone starting to think about doing that now? So it's funny, I have the pleasure of speaking with um, District Attorney George Gascon, who used to be the DA in San Francisco, yep. stepped down and then ran against the sitting LA District Attorney and beat her huh. and is now the DA of the largest DA's office in the United States of America. I've been speaking with George and his transition team about them setting up something similar huh. to what we're doing because right. you know the LAPD, for example, has very, 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 
high numbers and in particular against Latinos. So I know we're focusing a lot on the black community right now, but since I think 2018, 67% of the people fatally shot by the LAPD are, are Latinx and they only make up about 45 to 49% of the general population. So George is looking at making sure that there are some experts that aren't in the office, that aren't aligned necessarily with the police or we, so remember, we don't want bias or even the appearance of a bias, right? right? So that's why we set that up. But this is also, this argues, all of what you just said, all argues for the reason data should, is so critical to a DA's Absolutely. office, right? Like, cause it, it does feel like, there's a trickle down. If you can stop interactions, ultimately you probably stop the number of, you lower the number of incarcerations as well. A hundred percent. Right. And then more than that, you know, I think with data, even when we look at officer involved shootings, I think under the Trump administration, it was like, will you voluntarily tell us federal government, tell the federal government, when you have an officer involved shooting. What? Like, no, it's not voluntary. So I am optimistic, Jill, that we just saw our new attorney general, Merrick Garland, announce unequivocally that he is going to be launching an investigation into the very police department that killed George Floyd, murdered George Floyd. And we have Dante Wright's funeral coming up soon, Right. right? Because in the middle of the George Floyd trial, we interrupt this to let you know that Don Wright was just murdered. Right. And on the day of the verdict for, you know, the case that we're dealing about right now, we have a 16 year old girl, Micaiah Bryant, right in Columbus, Ohio, right. 16 years old um, after an interaction with police. And yes, she did have a knife in her hand, but I think there's this kind of really unreasonable as far as I'm concerned, jump from walking in to like lethal force, right? From zero to 100 in a second. And there are certainly circumstances where that is appropriate. I need to be very clear to you, Um, but they are not every circumstance, right? right? And what we need to make sure we're doing is having these tough conversations about police departments, having de-escalation training, you know, and having conversation with community about stuff like that. Well, and I think your approach is so important. It would be great if others across the country copy it, because right now we're, we're very leaned into this conversation, but it's, it's deeply fear-based on both sides. And so it's a highly emotional conversation. And if we could bring data into it and really start to understand in what cases does it play out in ways that we don't want it to play out. And, you know, how many steps back do you need to go in order to prevent that? The data would be, I mean, I understand it's a huge task, but it feels like that would be a much more civilized conversation that would get us somewhere. Because right now I feel like, right, it's, I'm not sure yet what's accomplished. Yeah, I look, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think we aren't even taught in some circumstances, people aren't even talking to each other. Right. Right. And so there needs to be. So after George Floyd's murder, I um, spoke with Mayor Walsh in front of the city of Boston on yeah. June 1st and was emotional. And then as the chief law enforcement officer, I sort of ordered, right, gently, but all of my commissioners, colonels and chiefs, there's only six of them, and said to them, we are going to sit down for about two hours 
and we are going to have monthly meetings and we are going to have a very real and unfiltered and confidential discussion about race policing in the black community. Yeah. And I promise you, I will actively listen to you, but you will also actively listen to me. Right. And so what was really interesting is I was the only woman in the room. I was not the only person of color. Um, We had commissioner Gross at the time and chief green is the head of the transit police. Right. But it was a really fascinating discussion. And I have said to them, you know, at the end of the meeting, like, this is an arranged marriage, gentlemen, right? I'm your DA, whether you want me to be or not, until January 1st, 2023, right? right? And if I run again, you get four more years, but you don't get to not engage with the DA, because as I said to you before, Jill, 95% of the cases we bring it's the Winter police, the Chelsea police, the Revere police, the transit police, the state police, or the Boston police that are our expert, essentially, witnesses. Yes, yeah. And that's, it's really important to recognize, you know, just how big this was that we got this conviction against um, Chauvin. Because remember, every one of us have watched Law and Order, right? Like, whenever these police officers are called in as the DA's witnesses, They are cloaked in credibility. We want to believe our police officers are exceptional and not criminals or racist or mentally ill. What we have to be far better at is recognizing there is not a single profession on the planet that has a 0% error rate. And for whatever reason, failure rate, right? For whatever reason, the police have like Kaiser Sosaid us or like tricked right. us into believing that they never make a mistake ever. Well, right. Right. Because it's what makes this, this country such a great country in one way is our rule of law. Yeah. And, and I think, I don't know that we all spend any time pausing to think about that, but it, we've gained so much safety and protection and we are who we are because of that. And at the same time, it's rule of law executed by humans. And so of course there's failure. Also, of course, and or, you know, just the important part of recognizing that there it's 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 not racist to say there are communities that still can't comprehend being pulled over because there's an air freshener blocking your mirror. Right. Right. Like the level of outrage my white relatives would have if somebody pulled them over for that. Like and 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 let me be clear the level of terror and fear that some of my other relatives would have if that happened, because we are, our lives aren't valued the same way. Our experiences are not the same. And these very laws that I agree, I'm a lawyer and I'm the chief law enforcement officer, but it is these very laws, Jill, where I was not considered a full human being, you know, by, by the founders of our country. Right. Right. So we have to start having those tough conversations and recognizing, all right, so what are we going to do about this now? Yeah. Right? We do need to marinate in the, in the uncomfort. But what another reason why I think I won the election is I was the only one that came up with a proposed solution. Now, you might hate my solution, but if I'm the only one out of the five of us that has one, yeah. I should get your vote. Because right? Right. all they're doing is complaining. I'm actually coming up with what I want to do. And the last thing I'll say is I met with judges 
police officers, prosecutors, criminal defense attorneys, people who had touched the criminal legal system and had a great experience, people who had touched the criminal legal system and had a terrible experience, and even people that were currently serving time. So I wanted to hear from probation, yeah. right? Like yeah. the clergy, anyone that was involved, I wanted to hear from. And we took their input and valued it, right? When we when we made our decisions. And I think that's like the sort of team of rivals, right? Like right. that you put together is how I like to lead, right? Because ultimately I want to make the most informed decision that I can. And then I need to be strong enough that if, I get a new piece of information that changes that, that I'm strong enough to say, you know what, we're changing our decision now because of this Yeah, and we're going to move forward. And, and that's just great leadership also. I hope. Now, can we talk about for a second, I, I had no idea there were 1300 unsolved homicides and, and mm-hmm. you have, because you've been able to free up resources, you have resources who are focused on this and you launched a program called Push to dig into this and try to solve a number of those homicides that happened right before COVID-19 as well. But can we start with why are there so many unsolved homicides? It's terrible. I mean, homicides are the most serious, uh, obviously crime that we handle. And there are times where, you know, it is very obvious when you arrive on a scene what happened, right? Or there might even be somebody who's sitting there saying, I did it, right? And then there are other ones that are hard to solve, right? For for whatever reason. For example, if they're outside um, scenes, then, you know, they, the scene might be far bigger, right, right? Than you could imagine, as opposed to if somebody is murdered in a bathroom stall, right? right? It is a relatively small, quote unquote, crime scene, unless it started somewhere else and then they walked in there. Yeah. But, but further than that, Jill, sometimes the community knows what it is that happened and they're not, they don't trust law enforcement. And mm-hmm. I'm part of that. I'm not only pointing at the police. They don't trust the DA's office. They don't trust the police either. So everything I do is about re like engaging the community mm-hmm. and slowly building trust back up mm-hmm. with respect to law enforcement. So that's number one. Number two, we go all the way back to 1960. Um, I have uh, charts on all the homicides that we have. And what I want these families to believe is that even if it's in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 10s, or 20s, that we haven't forgotten, right? And so we take a small sampling, right, from each of these decades, and we have people in our office that are now reviewing that file to see if there's anything new. We're not calling the family yet, but just having eyes laid on the file to see, is there evidence now? So for example, DNA evidence really didn't start happening. So if we have something from the 60s, 70s, or maybe even early 80s, is there something that might be able to be tested? Um, Is there any you know, with new eyes on it, was there a witness that we didn't call right Right. back then? And remember, I wasn't the DA back then. And I'm really proud of we've had a couple of cases that went forward that were, you know, 35 years old or 25 years old that we have now indicted people for those murders. And honestly, it's not only the right thing to do, I want these families to know that they should still have hope, right, that there is going to be accountability with respect to the devastating loss that they have have experienced, right? Because 
and that their loved one isn't forgotten. Right. right. And that's the, quite frankly, that's the most important part because I know these families, it does not matter whether it was three days ago or 33 years ago, there is still the hole that they have in their heart about the loved one that was, that was taken. Totally. That makes so much sense. Over the past year, because of the pandemic, have things changed? Have the crime rates changed? Has the way, has your office had to change the way that it does business at all? Certainly our neighborhoods have changed, right? They've become poor. There's more, there are more housing needs. There are more inequities. There's more food insecurity. What has all of the past year done to Suffolk County? What we had is, you know, certainly the kind of racial reckoning, the the cocktail of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, while also, you know, a global pandemic raged, and we just, and exposed all of these super significant inequities that we saw in certain communities, right? Chelsea, for example, right? Where when we start putting our minds together, Jill, about all of these sort of systemic failures and what that means. And I will give you just a very quick example. Chelsea has the Tobin Bridge going through it. It has um, Logan Airport flying over it. And it has one of the largest food distribution centers, private food distribution centers in the United States of America. So those are planes, trains, and automobiles, right? Or not trains, but you get it, right? There's trucks, cars, planes, and some people might be listening to this and saying, oh, well, that's great. So they have quick access to getting, no, toxins, right? right? Which means that there are higher levels of COPD and asthma, which is of course, you know, um, comorbidity factors now with respect to COVID-19. They are also um, housing a like 67% Latinx community, many of whom are non-citizens right. and they are our, some of our first responders. Like we now know that not only is it police and fire and EMS, which we've always known and we love and respect them, but we also know now as a result of COVID, it's the people that work at our supermarkets. Right. It's the people that work at our restaurants, right? And many of them have, they are also homeschooling, Jill, yep. right? They have kids that they now have to you know, they don't have access to Wi-Fi. It has just been blown open to see the huge disparities in in yeah. certain communities, number one. Yeah. And number two, crime does not stop with a global pandemic, right? You know, it, nobody's going to say, I'm not going to commit this murder tonight because I don't have a mask to put on because I, and it's 9 p.m. and there's a curfew. Like, right. No, like that's, if that were the case, we would have done this a long time ago. So there is a piece of this where sadly though, when our communities, you know, it is heart wrenching to me, Joe, when I see in wealthy communities that community centers and gyms are open, but in Boston, none of that's happening. Right. That was more what I meant because I feel like so many people, we left them without homes. We left them without schools. We left them without after school we left kids really to fend for themselves in so many situations. And so I wondered what your office saw as the trickle down effect of that. And, and we've left people suffering massively from mental health and abuse and unreported abuse. Absolutely. We've yeah. seen an uptick, sadly, in domestic violence, child sexual assault, abuse and neglect of children. Because remember, in some of those circumstances, work and school are a respite, right. right? You get to go there. And Jill, if you're my 
guidance counselor or my second grade teacher or the school nurse or the assistant principal, you see me and you say something's wrong with Rachel today. What's going on? You might not see that because I don't have Wi-Fi, right? Like we've even seen, Jill, over 20% of the kids in the Boston public schools haven't even logged on, right? To go to like, so we, we, what I'm seeing is everything you're saying, right? We need more resources. And, and that doesn't, I'm not saying police. I'm saying we need more after school, right? We need more sporting uh, opportunities, arts and culture, we need, but, but significantly, we need, you know, mental health and access to healthcare and things like that. And then we talked about it earlier, a living wage, housing, education opportunities that aren't segregated. There's a lot of work we have to do. And I totally get it when people feel overwhelmed, because it is a lot. Yeah. But we are ready. Believe me, we are ready for the challenge. So that is very hopeful and I'm glad. And I think it's, it's lucky that we're, you know, coming through COVID hopefully, and that we do have funding coming our way and coming at least to the city of Boston, but pretty much to, to your entire district. And what's happening on, uh, in terms of taking care of our city and taking care of Chelsea and Winthrop collaboratively, what do you think the strategy will end up being for recovery? Yeah, I mean, I think we saw that, you know, inequity was called out when Chelsea was only going to get an, an incredibly small percentage of yes. the, the federal funding yeah. when they had bore the brunt of literally, they were number one. I love you. Goodbye. My daughter's running by. Oh, um, they, they were, um, you know, literally number one in the COVID hotspot yeah. for our Commonwealth yeah. virtually every week. Right. Yeah. So what is great is people are paying attention now, but um, we're trying in Suffolk County to do things differently, right? We're trying to, you know, I meet monthly or bi-monthly with all of my chiefs now. I also have instituted the fact that quarterly I meet with all the presidents of the unions of the police departments, which was virtually unheard of, right? Mm -hmm. Remember, you know, there's one commissioner of the Boston Police Department, there are four presidents of the four unions in the Boston Police Department. So, you know, mm-hmm. as the daughter of union members, I feel like I'm not going to only talk to management. I want to speak to yeah. the leadership as well. And then we are really engaged with our community yeah. and hearing from them what they need yeah. before I say, look what I got you. Right. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I, know. I don't want that, and yeah. nor do I need it. So we are going to be way better at listening more and involving people uh, who have boots on the ground and know what it is that that individual community needs. Because Winthrop is different than Chelsea, is different than Roslyn and Boston. We say Boston, but think about all the distinct neighborhoods there are. That's right. So we are listening more. I appreciate so much you taking the time to do this with me today. It's so interesting. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. And so hopefully we'll get to do this again at some point. You bet. Thank you for everything you do. I appreciate it. It's such a pleasure to meet you. You as well. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Suffolk County DA, Rachel Rollins. Her job has got to be one of the most difficult jobs in Suffolk County, and I found her candor as well as her focus on using data and information to help drive equity in the field of criminal justice to be incredibly compelling. 
I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.